Welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right, if you've never heard the show before, don't make this your first episode because this week we're doing exclusively Q&A about particular old episodes. So I can't I can't promise that it will be worthless. It'll probably have some value, but definitely recommend at least listening to episode one and really episode two to understand what we're talking about on the show when we talk about human flourishing, knowledge systems, and a whole bunch of other concepts that will come up today. But I want to jump in because we have a lot of questions and I'm trying to keep the show not too long. So let's get started. I'm, I'm trying to categorize these somewhat. They're somewhat all over the place because it's a very broad show so far. But um, at least this will hopefully give some organization to the content. So first set of questions are about my conception of human flourishing. And just to give you a reference, in episode one, I talked about what I mean by human flourishing, the idea of human beings living to our highest potential, and that meaning that there's a very strong success component mentally and also materially. And a lot of thinking about human flourishing is thinking about integrated success in that way. And in episode two, I talked about certain words that I associate with flourishing that to me really capture a lot of what the experience of a flourishing life is. So I got a couple of questions about that from Mark Swan. He says, I've heard you discuss altitude a number of times. I'm still not sure I clearly understand what this is and why you consider it very important. Could you please elaborate on it and maybe give different contrasting examples to show what having versus not having altitude looks like? So I'll start out with examples just to make it as concrete as I can. Now, revealingly, the examples that come to mind most immediately for me are vacations that I've had in the last year where I was not using my phone. Phone is kind of a misnomer because it's, you know, our, our digital or universal digital device. And so a few occasions, and these were pretty short, but they were still dramatic. One about a year ago, I was in Peru for a talk and I went to Machu Picchu and then actually soon after, I was in South Africa for a talk and I went on safari in Kruger National Park in South Africa. And on both occasions, I had at least two days where there was no, like I wasn't using any kind of digital interaction except I think I had my Kindle with me. So I was either just reading stuff or I might have like a, some note cards with me, but even things like taking notes, I didn't have anything digital. And so I spent a lot of time just looking at things and reflecting. And even if you just take a day off and, and stop communicating and particular and in particular stop interrupting yourself in different ways, I think you, you start to find, or at least I start to find that certain questions come to mind and they're questions that are high level. And so a couple of questions that can come up are, what am I trying to do? And this can be sometimes within the day, but then it will often expand more broadly. Things like, 
what is my purpose in life? What am I trying to accomplish in life? And it's pretty amazing in my experience how quickly this thing comes up when there aren't interruptions. And this is this is part of what I'm I'm calling altitude is that I'm looking at my life from a high level. And now this is metaphorical, right? Because there's not actually height in that sense in the mind. But it's it's recognizing that the specifics of life um, in a given moment and over time are enormously complex. But we can get a clarity about, okay, what what do those specifics add up to? What what purpose are they going toward? And, and two other words that begin with P, I think, are very valuable. What path am I going on? So what is the path that achieving this purpose consists of? And then a third P is what priorities do I have? And priority, prioritization is really, really important in general. And then it's it's often the way in which we think purposefully and think in terms of our path on a day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month basis, just thinking about, okay, what actually matters to my purpose and my path, and then what doesn't. And for example, in Machu Picchu, I found myself thinking a lot about Human Flourishing Project, which was an idea that I had at the time, but I, I hadn't been getting to spend as much time on it as I would like. But left to my own devices, I started thinking about, okay, well, I really in my life, want to make sure that part of my work is bringing more clarity to issues of of human flourishing. I want to be a sort of scientist of human flourishing. And so part of my path is I've done certain things in energy and I want to continue to do things there, but there's this broader path that I want. And think about how hard it is to think this way in a meaningful way in day-to-day life. Now, remember a few episodes, I forget exactly which episode, it might have been episode eight, where I talked about, it might have been episode seven, seven, eight or nine, one of those, where I talked about distinguishing, thinking about the the what in life, like what we're going to be doing, and then thinking about the how, particularly the, the, the specific doing of it on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Well, having altitude, we're often thinking of the high-level what and that includes the high-level how. But that's very hard to do on a daily basis. And often doing it on a daily basis is counterproductive because it just ends up – you just don't have the time to think through it well. So it just ends up being, oh, well, there's this higher-level thing and it's distracting me from actually doing my work. But when I'm away from interruptions and I can I can start looking at everything on a higher level and I've deliberately eliminated all of these immediate things that I have to attend to, whether it's – work that I've committed to, or it's just interruptions that are a a kind of work of their own, then I start to look at things at that high level and ask, okay, what's my purpose? What's my path? What are my priorities? And it just leads to so much clarity. So I think that just given the nature of life, part of human flourishing is that we take the time to get that clarity, and then that clarity informs us on a day-to-day basis. So when I'm when I think of even day to day having altitude, it's when I feel most clearly, okay, here's my purpose purpose, here's my path, here are my priorities. And then what I'm doing today is really part of that. So for example, when I'm working on a book, I feel very much 
uh, I have a certain altitude. Even if I'm working on a very, very concrete thing within the book, I can see, okay, this is really part of what I want to create in my life. Whereas there are other projects sometimes where I'll get, like I'll have committed to them and I'll think, well, do I really want to do this? And the more days that are strung together where that's the experience, then I don't feel altitude. And then that's a signal, okay, I need to get altitude. And even though I feel like the most important thing is just doing the next commitment or creating the next commitment, actually, if I step back and look at things from a higher level, that that will be the most valuable thing. And as I'm saying this, I think, yeah, this is, I'm really glad tomorrow's a Saturday because that's going to be really good for me. And this week I've had a lot of stuff to do, you know, at least that I've assigned myself to do. And I can certainly think of a lot of things that I could advance by working on Saturday, but by recognizing, okay, my altitude is not as high as I want it to be, then I can know, even if it doesn't feel that way, it's going to be great for me to step back because then I'm going to get a perspective. And then one big thing is I'll identify, hey, you don't, you shouldn't even be doing a whole bunch of things you're doing. And that's one of the most productive forms of work is stopping doing the wrong work or the, the suboptimal work. So those are some thoughts on altitude. Hopefully that helps. Now I got a question from Allison T. Coons, I think that's how you pronounce it. Actually, I don't know, but Coons, K-U-N-Z-E, on creativity. And Allison says, in episode two, I think, you're right, you discuss your definition of creativity. And you quote me, I have a way of using my mind to sustain my life that fascinates me and motivates me, unquote. Could you discuss this idea more? It is so intriguing, broad, and different from the way creativity is normally discussed. What led you to this particular way of thinking about creativity? Well, thank you for the compliment. It's not exactly a, a definition of creativity, but now that you mention it, I can see how it's not the way that people often talk about creativity. And I think this connects to just in general the idea of thinking about things in terms of, of human flourishing. Because when people talk about creativity sometimes, I feel like they almost use it as a compliment to pay to themselves or to others or a status thing like, oh, this person's creative. I'm really creative. I'm better than other people because I'm creative. And you know, anytime I see that kind of fundamental comparison, I think, okay, that's not a winning formula in terms of how to think about life. So for me, when I when I think about creativity, it just emerges from thinking about okay, what does it mean for a human being to flourish? And we, I always focus on this integration of the material and the mental, and then clearly we need to produce value to survive, or somebody needs to produce value for us to survive. And then also noticing that that is an act primarily of the mind, and then depending on how I use my mind, it can either be really enjoyable or really tedious or even miserable, and so then it just stands to reason, okay, well, wouldn't it be great if I could find a way of using my mind that I found very stimulating and that also created a lot of value that could ultimately manifest itself in material form so that I could have abundance based on it? And of course, we have a lot of different 
models that we're given in life where we have this idea of having a career you love. And I think in general, that's a healthy way of thinking about it, even if if people sometimes think of it in a way that is that is unhealthy. And this there's a whole debate I don't want to get into, but you have some people just that there's a phenomenon of people refusing to work because they haven't found what they're passionate about. And that's a mess for a lot of reasons. But in general, it's a good thing to think about how can I create value in a way that I find fascinating. So for me, creativity captures that. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how do I really enjoy using my mind to create value. Uh, a good thinker on this, and I, I end up mentioning him a lot, I think, because he's just somebody who who thinks an abnormal amount about human flourishing is Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach. And he he likes the concept. I think he, he coined this concept, at least he, yeah, he uses this this the term in a in a specific way. He talks about unique ability. And in my understanding, he's talking about something that you have a combination of high aptitude at that creates a lot of value and you really enjoy it. And I think that's a that's a good thing to think about in life. And I think a lot of planning life is about planning one's creativity in that sense. So it's not creativity in any kind of comparative sense. It's just creativity in terms of how do I want to use my mind to create value in a way that satisfies me. And part of the satisfaction is going to be just in knowing that it creates value. It's important. And then part of it is, I think, in some irreducible way, just using my mind in this way really works for me. So for me, just using my mind to clarify things in a systematic way, so to to organize them in a certain way so that they're clearer for me and clearer for other people. Uh, and one example of that is coming up with a really good outline for something. For me, that just that works really well with the way I like to use my mind. For some other people, other things work well. And that's it's really important to get that along with it having a purpose. I think you really need both. One question that came from Anna Franco is uh, she, she's referencing someone else and it sort of amounts to by human flourishing, do I mean the individual or humanity or do I mean the flourishing of the individual or of humanity? Well, I, I think that, I mean, the the easy answer would be both or if I had to choose, it would definitely be the individual. But I think it's it's important that how how one thinks about this, because I think the, the first thing just logically that we think about is, OK, we have all of these human beings. We are one of them, obviously, and we legitimately we should care very much about our own fate. And then we see we, we interact with all these other people. And in some ways, our fates are bound together. And then in some ways, uh, when we act certain ways, we can hurt each other. And then there are a huge number of ways in which we can help each other. So I think we start out by saying, OK, it's good for me and for others if our lives go well. And then we can say, OK, there's a mental component of that and a material component of that. And then part of studying philosophy and other fields is to identify, OK, how do human beings flourish in relation to one another? Is there a harmony of interests or is there at least no fundamental conflict of interests? And how does that work? And understanding those dynamics of what of how human beings flourish in relation to one another has a lot of ethical implications. So, for example, I believe that human flourishing is extremely harmonious. 
And if if people do not take their own interest to be the unearned, so if, if they don't think that they don't define their interest as, oh, everyone should be my slave or something like that, there's an enormous harmony of interests. And because there's an enormous harmony of interests, that has implications for what it means to be moral or not. Uh, because if, if there's a real harmony of interests, and that fundamentally comes from human beings being creators of value, we're not fundamentally predators who need to survive at each other's expense, we're creators who can survive and flourish. In fact, we can amplify each other by working together. Then the whole societal focus on sacrifice doesn't make sense because if we can really succeed in harmony with one another and, and, and we can create value, then that should be the focus, not surrendering value versus if, if there was a, a fundamental conflict of interest and we were really predators, then we might have to think, OK, let's come up with something with some sort of scheme where we each agree not to eat each other and then we we make sure to give each other some portion of what we have since there's this zero sum. But since there's not the zero sum, since there's a potentially infinite sum, then that whole sacrifice mentality doesn't make sense. Now, this is a very big issue, which we can talk about more in terms of what ethics is, but that I'm just trying to indicate that studying human flourishing will ultimately tell us something about, okay, what does it really mean to flourish? And then what should what should we do to flourish? And I think studying human flourishing properly, we discover that it is very much possible for individuals to focus on their own flourishing and for that to be something that, that leads to a lot of harmony among individuals versus fundamental conflicts among individuals. All right. Now, so th those were some questions about my conception of human flourishing. Now, here are just some more specific ones on different topics. This is one I've gotten a lot on therapy. This is Jason Swihart. You've talked about your experience with therapy. How did you eventually find an effective therapist? What pitfalls did you encounter along the way? And how did you overcome them? This is a, a hard question, and I should say I don't have a really good answer to it. But here's my partial answer because it's a really important thing. So hopefully this can at least be somewhat helpful. One thing is just be clear on your purpose. And it's always important to be clear on purpose. But in particular with something like psychology, I think that a lot of professionals aren't very clear on their purpose or they might have a purpose I wouldn't agree with. So it, it, it's been important to me to define, okay, what do I want out of therapy? And maybe, maybe the psychologist can convince you, oh, there's some other purpose or you're thinking about it wrong, uh, incorrectly, but it's at least worth identifying, okay, here's what I would like help with um, and, and this is what I want to get out of this and then to be able to talk about it with prospective therapists. Uh, another thing is just to be willing to experiment a lot. I think people sometimes think, oh, I need to find the, the right person immediately that's usually not the winning formula, and in particular for something like this, it's not. So I would just say as a mindset, okay, be willing to test out at least five people. Another thing is just looking for recommendations, and the more you're clear on your purpose, I think the better you can do that. I think you can ask in a way that's not too personally revealing, hey, I would, you know, I'm looking for a therapist who could help X, Y, and Z. Or if you don't want to say it about yourself, just say like, oh, my friend is looking for a therapist that can help with X, Y, and Z. 
And in this day and age, I haven't checked out too much, but I'm guessing that there are different kinds of testimonials that people have and and referrals and, and rating systems. And I'm guessing that if you read those, you'd get some sense of how people, of what their experiences have been with different people. Now, to some extent, that can be misleading because everyone is different, but in fields like this where it's just hard to know what's right, uh, I, I put more stock in just finding individuals who seem pretty similar on their needs, and then if, they ha- if they've found a practice or a system that works for them, and this, this time in the form of a therapist, then I, I would definitely try that. So clarity of purpose and I forgot the second one that I that I said and recommendations. Oh, just being willing to try a lot of options. One thing with finding therapists, I've noticed, and this this applies to other areas of life, is people have there's not enough of a bias toward action. There's there's a fear of, okay, well what if I get the wrong person or don't get the right person versus, you know, if you talk to people and you try to be purposeful about it, you, over time you'll you'll get some real value out of it, and you're not you're not asking for an overlord or something like that. So, of course, a bad therapist can do um, can do damage, but I think in general, if people are clear on their purpose and they test people out, that's going to be a good thing. And people who who say for ten years, hey, I'd like a therapist, but I don't know what to do, I think that's almost inevitably the worst thing to do. Um, by the way, I'm going to, uh, I'm tentatively planning to have one of my first guests on the show in the next month or two. And it's a psychologist I met recently whom I thought had some very interesting views and what he had come up with seemed to be right in a lot of ways, just based on my own experience and thinking and reading. So that's just a, a preview, but that, that person may be able to help a lot, or at least you can see, oh, does this person's way of thinking make sense? Do his recommendations make sense? And certainly I'll ask him that therapist question. All right. Here's a question from Don Watkins, who works with me. So he asked, if someone is motivated to apply a human flourishing framework to their field or some area of their personal life, what's the best way to start? And I wasn't sure exactly what he meant, So I asked him to elaborate and he said, what I had in mind is people who have spoken to me or posted on Facebook that they're excited about your project and who want to apply it in their field, whether it be nutrition or healthcare policy or finance, and don't have a clear idea of the next action. And then he elaborated, the best way I can put it is, what would be your advice for someone who has listened to the first two episodes of your podcast and wants to immediately embark on the journey of creating knowledge and communication systems for a field they are passionate about. So he's talking primarily about knowledge, potential knowledge producers. Now, this is a a very big area, but I'll I'll try to boil it down to two concepts just so that that I that have been just very helpful to me. So one is getting clear on human flourishing based standards in the field. And then two is getting a systematic causal understanding of the field. So both of those are big. I'll just go into them a little bit. So human flourishing-based standards. And I talked about this a bit in episode two, and I'll, I'll share some of my own experiences. But 
one way to think of this is in most fields, what's going wrong? One of the things that's going wrong is people are not thinking about human flourishing as the ultimate purpose that should be achieved in the field. In episode two, I mentioned with nutrition, people, they're thinking too too much in terms of just, okay, fat loss or weight loss. Like that's what we need to focus on versus in a human flourishing concept, that would only be part of it. But there would also be things like energy levels and longevity and feeling good physically and a couple of others that I mentioned at the time. And so one really big thing you can do for a field is just think of the goal as human beings flourishing. And then based on that goal, thinking about, okay, what what standards are there that I can use of human flourishing in this field? So if I take energy, for example, some standards might be, okay, abundance. That's going to be key to people flourishing with energy. There needs to be a lot of it. And then affordability, they need to be able to afford it. And reliability needs to be on demand. And safe needs to be in a way where it's it's empowering them, not endangering them. So those might be four standards of human flourishing in that field. And you can do it with other things in psychology, just thinking about things like joy and serenity. And often it's it's hard to know what these are. It, it, you think it and you rethink it. For example, in psychology, I was mentioning a few minutes ago, I, I met this interesting psychologist recently. And, you know, he, when he was talking about standards of human flourishing in psychology to, to import my terminology onto what I think he's doing, you know, he was challenging the idea that people are too much equating psychological health with just joy. And his view is, well, this is a really important component, but if you do what he calls joy chasing, that can be detrimental because by the nature of life, there's this whole spectrum of emotions. And if you just try to optimize for this one thing, that doesn't really work very well. And he had a whole view of that, but that's that's a really interesting thing to kind of think of is, okay, what does flourishing mean in this field? And I'd say the first thing is just to start thinking about it that way and to certainly have in mind the idea of the integration of the material and the mental and think a lot about standards, uh, ultimately based on the, the purpose being you want human beings to flourish. And then the other thing I mentioned is systematic causal understanding. And this is probably where most of the work is. And I'll just start out with an example in energy. If I'm trying to identify what in the field of energy, which is then connected to a whole bunch of environmental issues because energy in many ways has different kinds of environmental impacts, potential positive and negative impacts, I need to think about, okay, what what are the cause and effect relationships in using versus misusing energy that are actually going to advance human flourishing? And so if we take and and the more we have human flourishing based standards, the more the principles and causal relationships we f- we formulate will be changed. For example, in in the realm of let's take climate influence, the way it's usually thought of in energy is something like, well, we want to avoid climate change, just in this very vague sense. And part of that is it's just vague and sloppy, but another part of it is it's not connected to human flourishing in in any kind of clear way because change is a neutral concept. It could be positive change. It could be negative change. 
it's the, the focus on climate change versus climate non-change, that's not based on a human flourishing standard. It might be related, but it's not clearly driving it based on change or non-change. It's, it's not a human flourishing-based uh, conceptualization of thinking about it. So the way I, I started to think about it is, okay, what, what types of cause and effect am I trying to find with climate and human flourishing. And then I thought, okay, well, what we really want is we don't want climate non-change. We want climate livability. So that's so then I start thinking, okay, what leads to climate livability? And then, okay, well, one thing is climate enhancement. Is human beings using uh, ultimately technology to take a given atmosphere and to make it more conducive to their lives? For example, you can say, well, we're, we're engaging in climate enhancement by having, say, a really good heating system that when we want it to be warmer makes it a little warmer. So that's that's then a key um, policy is to engage in, in climate enhancement. And then at the same time, we also nature, the climate can be very hostile. So we can also think of it in terms of climate protection. And sometimes these things run together. Like when is it enhancement? When is it protection? Sometimes they run together. But in general, what I'm thinking of is I'm identifying all these different policies that we can engage in to make climate more livable. But the reason I'm thinking about it in terms of livability in the first place is because I'm thinking in terms of human flourishing versus if I'm not thinking in terms of human flourishing, then I'm just going to import any kind of like whatever people, however people happen to be talking about it. I'm going to talk about it that way, even though I can't coherently talk about a policy toward climate change that leads to human flourishing or not, because it's just it's change versus non-change is the is not a human flourishing based way of thinking about it. Another concept in energy, just because I know that well, is renewable energy. Like, is energy renewable or not? That is also not a human flourishing based concept. It might be relevant, but renewable means something like can be repeated forever. And there's a problem because that doesn't really make sense with anything because everything, nothing is forever. And, and even with the so-called renewable energy, a lot of the parts of the process are extremely finite and we don't even know how to scale them now, let alone for a billion years. But even if you had some forms of energy that were actually renewable, that wouldn't be the primary thing. The primary thing would be things like affordable, abundant, reliable, safe, because those really relate to human flourishing. So you wouldn't say like, hey, my policy is renewable energy. That that kind of energy at best might be might end up being part of your policy. But it's not having that as a policy is not going to lead to human flourishing. So with the issue of climate livability and then with the I would call it evolving energy versus renewable energy, like a lot of what I'm doing is I'm looking systematically at in energy, what practices and policies actually lead to human flourishing. And part of that is always I'm I'm keeping in mind human flourishing as the goal. And then I'm also trying to be very precise to understand, okay, this causes that and to be able to get it really clean versus having this sloppiness that I find abounds everywhere. So that's why I say systematic causal understanding. And you know, I wish I, I hope that more people try to do this because it, it is a pain to do in a certain sense because it can be hard to really organize things and things are organized very badly by default. But when you start to get it, it just everything fits together and it's beautiful and it's easy to make 
you can just make so much progress in any field. And it ends up seeming like, oh, it's totally simple. Obviously, if we want climate livability, we have to engage in in enhancement and protection or what's another one? I mean, with environment, this is related, but like, obviously, you know, our, our, the quality of our environment is based on our ability to neutralize threats and create resources. That's another organization of knowledge that I have in the energy slash industrial slash environmental world. But it's, it's based on a human flourishing is my purpose. Therefore, I always have that as the standard for everything I'm thinking of. And then B, I'm looking for this systematic causal understanding so I can identify the the practices and policies that are going to lead human beings to flourish, and I can do it with precision. So see what you think about that. I got a question from Edgar Alejandro Madariaga Melendez. Maybe he's from Spain because I know they like to use, or maybe, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Spain or Argentina or some some derivative of Spain where uh, they like to have a lot of the names together. And he says, learning how to learn. And I just I just refer you to what I just said about Don's question, because if you can have this idea of, okay, human flourishing is the purpose and I want systematic causal understanding, that's a good filter for looking at different people. And a lot of learning well in a given field is just finding people who are really, really good, finding the top 1% or top 0.1% who are already doing pretty good things in terms of discovering and organizing knowledge and then uh, going with then, – then just learning a lot from them. From them. I'm, I'm in favor of being exposed to a variety of views, but even then I want to be exposed – to the people who are most coherent and clear, even even for the wrong views or the views I ultimately decide are wrong, it's there's we can just save an enormous amount of time by finding the really high level people and and especially for the view that we decide is right, we can just then if we find that person we can learn just so much from them. All right, planning. There's somebody with uh, I don't even know what some some Asian language, so I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he says, how do you actually use your, because it's just the characters, it's not even uh, written out phonetically in English. How do you actually use your Sunday to plan for the week ahead and how to prioritize rest and work? What do you do when you have energy drained down, sick or not feeling well days? And there are a couple of questions like this. So probably some of my answers will overlap. Well, just concretely, so my, my preference is to actually plan on Friday if I can get away with it. And it's currently Friday afternoon. And even just right after this, planning the week as much as possible is going to be my priority. So just concretely, I talked a bunch about this in one of the relaxed productivity episodes. I think the one where I talked about um, the thinking about the what versus thinking about the how. The positive focus exercise I mentioned in episode three, I do that for the week. I do 10 of them. And pretty in-depth, just identifying the 10 biggest victories of the week, because I find that, that that creates a whole bunch of clarity and momentum for the next week. And often the the best thing I can do next week is to build on the victories of this week. And then I, I look at my planning system, which has longer-term goals and has different categories. And this is the thing where I'm trying to be comprehensive with my different goals and commitments. And then I look at that and I update it. 
and I update it in relationship to my calendar so that when I look at the next week, I think, okay, everything I really want to do, I have time allocated to that. Now, you ask also about energy-drained, prioritizing rest and work, energy-drained, down, sick, or not feeling well days. Well, with the prioritizing rest and work, I think this someone else is going to ask about this later. I At this point, I just think of rest in a, in a way that's very embedded in work. So if you came and worked with me for a day, you'd see I usually take a lot of time off during the day, maybe not huge amounts of time, but every, let's say, hour and a half, two, two and a half hours, I'll do one of my rejuvenation processes. So I might go on my one-wheel skateboard or go in the ocean or meditate. Uh, meditation, I, I like to do most of all at the beginning of the day. I do that almost every day now at that time because it's so valuable. Uh, but it's just I, I have a sense with my work of I need to have a bunch of energy when I work. And I hold that in a way that's not a procrastinating way. I just know, okay, for the kind of work that I want to do that really moves the needle, it's just good for me to have a lot of energy and a lot of clarity. And that way, that's why I schedule a bunch of breaks during my day. But then I'll just also have a feel for it. And if I get behind on breaks, then I feel behind. I don't feel like, oh, I've done a good thing by not taking breaks. I feel like, oh, this is not a good thing. For example, today I had a lot of meetings because Friday I often have a lot of meetings in addition to trying to plan the next week. And I just, some of them went long and I just did not engage in any rejuvenation or very little. I might have taken 15 minutes until about 1 or one thirty, And so then I just thought, okay, I got to take a what I call a Seinfeld nap, which you'll learn about if you listen to one of the episodes. And then also just even meditate after that because I just knew, okay, I'm I'm really behind. But I think of it as I'm behind in terms of rejuvenation. In terms of sick days and not feeling well, I don't know, to the extent those are the same, uh, well, hopefully you structure your life so that it's not so jam-packed that you have to be stressed out about that. And just think of things that you like that you can do during that and then enjoy that as much as possible. Or if you need to, if you absolutely need to do work then, then just know that a lot of people have done work under a lot more difficult circumstances. So not the best, not my favorite way. I like to work when it's enjoyable, but it's also important to have the discipline to do it when it's not enjoyable, if it, if it really is contributing toward greater enjoyment and success in the future. All right, Mark Moses, regarding the management of your time via the calendar, how do you manage potential interruptions that may be worth shuffling your schedule without undercutting the benefits of the calendaring discipline? For example, you have scheduled the afternoon for writing, but then you hear someone is in town for the day and this person could greatly help you in your marketing, perhaps even related to a different project. If you take the meeting, you will effectively lose the writing time, although it seems reasonable to reorganize the day or week based on this emerging opportunity. It introduces opportunities to procrastinate or otherwise erode productivity if one is constantly having to evaluate and assess unplanned events or opportunities. Yeah, one test of this is it should not be happening a lot. That is... If I'm really good at at planning my life from high altitude, I should proactively think about things like, okay, this person, I want to get help on marketing from this person. If, if every day there are new quote-unquote opportunities that are derailing my plan, then either my plan is bad or I'm using opportunities as procrastination. So if 
I just have that in my mind that if this is happening a lot, then then something is off. And and particular in particular with events, I think it's just very very easy to overrate how important a particular event is or a particular quote unquote opportunity to talk to someone. If if someone's willing to talk to you, probably a good chance they're willing to talk to you another time. And if they learn that, hey, you are just a machine, like you always write before 12 p.m. and therefore no meetings then, it's probably not going to be the case. They'll say, oh, I would never talk to such a person. If anything, that'll be intriguing. So the main thing is you having a plan that's good and then improving your plan over time and then executing. Um, and then that's the context for for opportunity. But opportunity is a very is a very tricky concept to deal with because it often leads to people being reactive. And this happens, there's often a point in life where this happens where one has achieved a certain amount of success and then lots of quote unquote opportunities come in. And then there's a real discipline to say, okay, I'm going to take the ones that really advance my life in a way that, that makes sense to me versus just acting like, in, in a desperate way, oh, I need to I need to explore every opportunity. So, no, like the 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 real opportunity is your life, your way. Lisa Johnson Robbins, how do you handle big blocks of time that require sitting to work, taking breaks without getting distracted? How do you fit your restorative breaks into your schedule? So I mentioned that in terms of day to day, I just I just view those breaks as essential to working at the level that I want to work in terms of output and clarity and energy. And in terms of taking big blocks of time, I don't have much original to say except that distraction is the enemy. So things like putting the phone away, turning it off, not having it in view, there's a lot of value just to eliminating potential sources of distraction. Now, you want to be able to work even when there are distractions, but you might as well eliminate them. One little thing that I do, which is completely optional and might not even be ideal, is I when I, when I work, particularly on writing or editing, I often sit in a really comfortable chair, like I'll recline on a couch or something. And I think most people who saw the way I worked would think it's kind of weird because I don't sit at a desk very often. But just for me, that for the kind of work I do, I find that I just, I relax and I don't feel like getting up and I can just lock into it. For other people, it might make them sleepy. So the only lesson there is just figure out an environment where as much as possible, your mind relaxes into the productive task and just feels like, yeah, this is where I want to be. All right. Wrapping up, we've got a couple more meditation. Okay. A couple of these came up and I, uh, this is just in response to a failure of mine, which was that I said that I would teach you, I would tell you the uh, free way of trying something like Transcendental Meditation, and then I failed. So I, I apologize. I haven't figured out how to use show notes very well, and we still don't have a real web page for this podcast. Although if you go to humanflourishingproject.com, you can get on the email list, and that'll at least give you Friday reminders. So I'm very happy that I'm doing this every week. Not so happy with my non-show notes and non-website, but we are at least making a lot of progress. So I'll just tell you now, if you just go to YouTube, search for release, R-E-L-E-A-S-E, 
meditation. And then the guy who does it is this guy named Brendan Burchard, B-R-E-N-D-O-N space B-U-R-C-H-A-R-D. And he's an interesting guy. He has a book called High Performance Habits that I think is is quite good. And so I can't vouch for everything, but he is yeah, he's a very interesting guy, very smart guy. And at least that book I think is is very good and and is in general thinking about things in terms of human flourishing and and thinking often quite precisely about human flourishing. But certainly that he has something that is very, very similar to TM where he teaches you, but he uses the word release as a mantra. For whatever reason, that actually, word doesn't actually work very well for me when I've tried it, but you can go find a, a different mantra. Maybe that one will work for you. But I think he does a pretty good job of, of guiding you in it. Okay, Donald Blanksby, he's interested in how you meditate and the benefits, how you got over the mystic nature in which most advocates and teachers of meditation come at it. Well, so the I mean the benefits are just that it clears my mind a lot and it just gives me energy. I was I was meditating on Wednesday. I was at a conference and there was a bunch of chaos there and I was just doing this little speech, but even a little speech tends to wear me out and I just found a quiet place and meditated for 20 minutes and man, it's just it's just amazing what that can what that can do in terms of the mystic nature yeah didn't i mean i just i just took it as okay this is a technique and i'm going to try the technique and if the technique works then there's some you know i don't think of things mystically so there's some cause and effect of how it works and maybe i can understand that fully maybe i can't i don't feel like i fully understand it but if i keep if I keep using it and it keeps working really well and I can feel the change as I go through it, I can even feel, okay, what's it like at five minutes versus 10 minutes? And usually starting at 10 minutes, there's this tipping point where I just feel, start feeling a lot, a lot better. Then, yeah, then I, I do it. So people, even people who have sometimes mystical explanations for things, sometimes those can be legitimate things or they can be partially legitimate. So I just view it as I'm, I'm trying to mine the world for knowledge and, as I've mentioned, it can be hard to find good knowledge sometimes. So one thing is I just I look for people who have systems that seem to get good results, and then I try to test those out and then uh, extract what I can once I've seen the results. Uh, Jerry Glynn, can you talk a little bit about what you experienced during after a TM session, especially during, are you focused on the sound, or is that just to distract you and prevent your mind from wandering? Well, it's sort of both. So I'm focused on the sound, but at least for me, it's it's when when it occurs to me to focus on the sound. So my, my mind certainly drifts quite a bit when I'm meditating, but I consider that part of the meditating because there's it's not just like I'm just sitting there ruminating in this kind of deliberate way. It's like, okay, yeah, my mind may go off on some subject, but it's still in this relaxation state. I have no idea if there's any kind of officially recommended balance of like your mind wandering versus not. But the way I take it is just when I'm meditating, my only job is to think of the mantra when it occurs to me to think of the mantra. But if I go on, my mind thinks about something else, great. That happens all the time. And whether that's the best way to meditate or not, I don't know. I just know that doing that is really, really valuable. So I I try to just worry not at all about what's happening during it. I just have this idea that, okay, you're sitting there for 20 minutes and when it occurs to you to think of this word, you know, say it in your head in a certain kind of soft and relaxed way. And then in general, you tend to relax. But I, I, I beyond that, I don't 
I'm not goal oriented in terms of the mental state because that's counterproductive because if, if you're the, the meditative state is not something you can will directly. And so trying to do it just leads to self-consciousness. And, and even if you're self-conscious, that's fine. Just spend 20 minutes, see what it's like. And, and, and try it a bunch of times, but I really like it. All right. Last question. This is, this is the hardest one for reasons that you'll probably understand. This is from someone named Marty Magalanus. Magallanes, I don't know if it's a Spanish origin or not, but Marty says, admittedly, I'm a Gen Xer and social media isn't really my thing. However, I can't help but notice that your number of followers and the likes shares are way lower than I would expect. You have a vital and interesting perspective, an amazing book, and a super palatable personality. Why aren't you getting more traction? Why is it every time I mention your book, it's the first time anyone has heard of it? Everyone should read The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, regardless of what they think they know. I'm with you, my friend, but where is everyone else? Uh, this is a good question. I appreciate the compliment. So one thing I'll say about this is, for better or worse, I've spent a lot of my time over the last several years doing things that are fairly behind the scenes. So with companies in particular that I agree with on energy policy, trying to help them train their employees to think and talk in a certain way, trying to help them create better messages, and then a lot just speaking to audiences, like speaking to audiences in the energy industry, and also spent a lot of time learning business to have that business being successful. And there's a somewhat of an, there's a definite opportunity cost there in that I haven't actually spent very much time publicly. Uh, for instance, my other podcast, Power Hour, I don't think I've done in, in a year and a half. And I appreciate that people are always asking me about that. And I'm, I'm thinking about how to resurrect it pretty soon. Uh, but so there are always these trade-offs. And it, it was a goal of mine to, with my work, not just myself be the spokesman for the idea, but to help other people, particularly people in the business world, advocate for the right ideas. And I see things in the energy world that have at least shown some of the benefits of that because I see people in politics, in legal cases, using my arguments in different ways. I see them penetrating the, you know, the industry in certain ways that are very heartening. So there, there has been something there, but it's definitely uh, contributed to me not being particularly publicly well-known, at least not as publicly well-known as, as at least in energy, I think the ideas warrant. And... So in terms of just my own goals going forward, I'll just say that it, it's it's a big goal of mine going forward to be much more public because I really a lot of the stuff I figured out over the past several years. Uh, I, I feel like one of the frustrations I have is, oh, I haven't shared it nearly enough. I would like it to be accessible to more people. And I think you'll see in the, the coming months that this strategy of being more public is going to be realized. And part of that is just figuring out things like, okay, what what do I want to do with this podcast? What's the business model for this podcast? Uh, what do I want to do publicly in energy? What do I want to do publicly in other fields? And right now, I have a, I have a good business in energy. That's, that's my primary focus. And so I'm going to keep doing that. And then I'm going to do more exploration in these other realms. But I think in a, a year, certainly two years, what you'll see 
at least in my current thinking, is you'll see, hey, I'm, I'm going to, instead of writing a book every four or five years, you'll see, oh, there's a book every year and I'm taking on more subjects and I'm interacting with a lot more people. And it'll seem to you like I'm doing way more work. Hopefully it won't be more volume-wise, but it'll just be, hey, I'm creating a lot more that everyone can consume and share. And then we can really take advantage of all the modern, amazing sharing tools. So for now, share this podcast, share my other work. I really appreciate it. And if certainly if you know of any media outlets that would like to interview me, I'm happy to do those if they're really good podcasts or TV shows. And yeah, you can, to the extent you think it's valuable, you can just at least help people in your circle by sharing it. And then ultimately that'll create more and more of a following that will allow me to do more and more with this perspective. So thank you for that support. And thanks everyone Thanks to everyone who asked a question. That's it for this week. I'm not sure what we're covering next week. I'm going to go get a little altitude and just think about what I want to cover in the next phase of the podcast. My inclination is to focus more on knowledge acquisition systems and to start, at least the next two months, start uh, doing things like exploring nutrition and psychology, or at least exploring more how to explore them. So if you have any thoughts on that, I'm certainly interested in that. Uh, but it's it's the kind of thing where it's been really interesting and enjoyable so far. And I want to get some more altitude and just think about, okay, yeah, what, what can we really accomplish with this part of the project? And then ultimately other parts of the Human Flourishing Project. So thanks for being with me for these first 11 episodes. Hopefully we'll uh, you'll be with me for a lot more, dozens or even hundreds more in the future, and we can all grow together. All right. If you want to participate in the conversation with me and with others, uh, go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash human flourishing project. And to get weekly notifications about the latest episode of the show, go to humanflourishingproject.com and sign up for the email list. All right. Thanks again, everyone. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been the Human Flourishing Project. <laughs>